For more than 35 years, CSG has simplified the complexity of business, delivering innovative customer engagement solutions. With CSG, companies can acquire, monetize, engage, and retain customers. Find out more at www.csgi.com. Welcome to the Light Reading Podcast. I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading. I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm also an editor at Light Reading. I am Nick McEwen. I'm a professor at Stanford University. Thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. If you don't recognize his name, he is about to receive the 2021 IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal for Contributions to Internet Router Architecture and Software-Defined Networking. This is going to happen at an honor ceremony. The event is known as the uh, 2021 IEEE VIC Summit and Honor Ceremony. VIC in this case stands for Vision, Innovation, and Challenges Summit. Uh, the summit and ceremony are going to take place virtually on May 11th through May 13th, 2021. It's going to be archived online after that. So in case you hear this podcast after the event's already happened, I bet you can still go back and have a peek. But, uh, well, first of all, Nick, congratulations on this honor. This is pretty amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, no, it's a great uh, it's a great honor and a, com a complete surprise for a couple of reasons. One is that you never know when these things are going to happen. And the second thing is, just think about it. It's the Alexander Graham Bell Award. He invented the telephone. If there's anything that replaced the telephone, it was the internet. So there's a certain delicious irony to it. And one has to wonder what he would think about it. I have been teasing the IEEE that rather than phone me to tell me about the award, they send me an email. And that seems <laughs> to be the appropriate thing oh. in 2021. <laughs> That's how it happens these days. I don't think he'd turn in his grave. I think he'd be delighted. I think he'd be proud at what uh, telephony enabled, right? The internet was built on the telephone system to start with. And uh, yeah. I would love to be a fly on the wall, though, to watch you explain it to him the first time through. Tell him exactly, walk him through what SDN is. <laughs> An unreliable substrate over which you're going to carry him. It's a pretty amazing honor for anyone in a, in a technical field to have that kind of recognition. It also, I think, says in ceremony what we already know in the real world, which is that software-defined networking has really changed things. It's changed how we design networks, how they're built, and what kinds of technologies now are propelling those networks um, forward. I wanted to find out from you, do you feel like SDN has developed in the way that you would have envisioned or in the way that you thought about when this was kind of coming together in the first concepts of you know, separating the transport side from the uh, from the other side? I'm trying, I'm blanking. <laughs> The forwarding plane, sorry. <laughs> you know, of course, these things never evolve and develop as you originally intend. If they did, then life would be kind of boring. But I think it's safe <laughs> to say that the way that we build networks and the way that we build networking equipment today is very, very different from how it was, say, 15 years ago at the birth of some of these ideas. And I have to give credit to Martin Casado, who was a PhD student in my group, and Scott Schenker, who we were working with at Berkeley. Really, the three of us were pondering why it was that the underlying network architecture was changing so little. This was back in 2005, 2006, and people were talking about network ossification. The things had changed so little. It was either because when the internet was first defined back in the 70s and 80s, it had been 
perfectly architected the first time, or more likely, it was just really, really difficult to change. And we know the answer to that, of course. It was very, very difficult once you've got, you know, initially people were saying, oh my gosh, there's 100,000 people connected to this network that had been designed to interconnect researchers at uh, uh, across the United States. And then before you know it, it's a million, then it's a billion, and then it becomes almost impossible to change. So it was really born out of this frustration that we felt and that we could observe that others were feeling at how hard it was to change the network. And to be honest, we didn't really appreciate at the time the significance, the future significance of data centers and now what we would think of as cloud service providers or hyperscalers and how they were going to transform the way that we think about networking. And I would go so far as to say that the disaggregation of networking equipment by them for their needs to be able to build at the scale that they needed to be to build for data centers. That was such a driving force that what we now think of as software-defined networking was actually inevitable. It was inevitable because of their need, of their need to build at scale. They needed to take control. And, you know, SDN is about taking control. It's about who is in control of the control plane software. And that's moved from those who build the equipment, who wrote that software in the early days, to nowadays all of the top 10 or 15 cloud service providers, they all write their own software to control their networks because they have to. That's the only way they can build them at scale. I mean, getting back to your original question, though, which was, did it did it evolve in the way that we, that we thought that it would? We actually thought we were bringing about a change in enterprise networks. The earliest ideas that we had were about, essentially, why do we have so many network administrators on our college campus? So the... Uh, I can remember I can remember where we were sitting when it was it just dawned on us that on Stanford campus we have about 35,000 people and we have about 2,000 switches at that time sitting in 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 wiring closets spread out across campus. We have a telephone system that connected everybody and a network that connected everybody. The telephone system was run effectively by about 5 five people. There were 200 people running the network. Why was that? What was what was that all about? They were essentially managing hundreds of wiring closets spread out across this campus. And you'd see people scurrying into those wiring closets to go and reconfigure switches and routers and firewalls and load balancers. It was all a very, very manual and distributed process. And so we were just thinking, wouldn't it be easier if you could manage it from a central location? Wouldn't it be easier if you could draw all of those features and management and complexity up into a single central location for an enterprise like a college campus. And today, we don't think of that as that radical. At the time, it was so controversial to be even suggesting it. Many people thought we were nuts. But that's what we thought that we were doing. And the idea just caught the imagination, really, of the data center companies, like Google in particular. They were a close ally to start with and adopted many of those early ideas in the form of open flow and removal of the complexity from the boxes, lifting it up and out of the network into a more central location. And it just fit with what they needed to do. And so that's how it turned from being an enterprise approach to really being a data center model. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, now that you're applying SDN and the the DARPA project Pronto and wanted to hear a little bit more about that and, and how SDN can be utilized to secure 5G networks. You know, I think that uh, the last 
10 or 15 years, it's really seen three significant changes in the way that we design networks. The first one is that change of control, right? Who is in control of the the software that manages a network and, and determines how you make it secure and make it reliable? And that really has taken place absolutely across all of the, the data centers and is beginning to take place across the ISPs and mobile operators as well in various forms with various approaches. But broadly speaking, they now take it for granted that they can determine that that, that, that software. The, kind of the second change, which is more recent, is in how forwarding takes place. It used to be that forwarding was fixed function. You couldn't change it. It was whatever happened to be in a chip. And you know what's in a chip is defined by a chip designer. No chip designer I know of has ever managed a large network. So how could they possibly know what goes as the features into those chips? So the second part was handing over the keys to, to those who own and operate networks to define how packets are forwarded. So that's kind of the second change. Now we're clearly in the middle of that transition and that transition will take a few more years to play out. But the third one, which I think has been a little quieter and not so obvious to the outside, but we all know it in the networking community, and that's the reemergence of software, open source software in particular, as a real force in networking. It, you can now rely and trust upon it in a way that we haven't been able to do for a long time. Over in the world of computing, where there was Linux and there was Mozilla and there was Apache and you know no end of, of successful open source projects for the infrastructure. Somehow networking lost its way. The early days of the internet, sort of the defining mantra of the IETF was rough consensus and working code. And it was a group of people who would share software. It was essentially open source. But then it turned into a real business and the equipment operator, the equipment vendors, they needed to make a business. They needed to support software. And in order to be able to support it, it had to be software that they owned and, and trusted for themselves. So it was proprietary and it moved from being open source to proprietary. That has now changed. And I think that is an irreversible change this time that now we, we know we can trust software. So those three changes, change of who, who owns the control plane, who defines the forwarding behavior, and that it is open source, means that the network has essentially turned into a programmable platform, an entire platform where software determines the, what the network does from top to bottom, from the, the intent, the desire, the specification of what we want the network to do, all the way down to how packets are forwarded. And it also is determining the behavior from end to end. The switches are becoming programmable with smart NICs, the network interfaces are becoming programmable and defined by the owner and operator of the network. Everything is becoming programmable in a way that it never was before. But it's more than just the individual pieces that are changing. Once everything is programmable, you almost forget that it's made up of individual pieces because the whole system, a platform that is programmable by those who own and operate it, this is a massive change. Because now, whether I'm a 5G operator or I'm a wireline operator, or it's my Wi-Fi in my enterprise, I can decide what are all the features, what are all the protocols, how are the packets processed, but I could also determine what do I look at? What are the, what are the dials that I can see? What are the knobs that I can change so that I can affect the network mm -hmm. behavior as I want to in my environment? I think it will, we will change how we think of networks whether they're 5G or whether they're my home network, whether they are a long-haul cross-nation network, we will think of it as something 
that is all about programming and software rather than protocols and features all to do with interoperability, I think that will become much less important or a less, a smaller part of our conversation about what networks do. Do you think that as things become more programmable, that that introduces different types of security risks along the way? I, I did read a bit about Project Pronto, this thing that uh, DARPA is funding. I'm trying to figure out what exactly DARPA is worried about with 5G networks and, and, <laughs> and, and sort of what's motivating their interest there, because there's obviously something that they're wanting to figure out about the secu- the inherent security in, uh, in networks as they are now. And so d- does, does that programmability come to bear in those risks? So, you know, DARPA is funding Project Pronto, this project that runs across Stanford, uh, Cornell, Princeton universities, with the platform being developed as open software by the Open Networking Foundation, or ONF. And we can't know all of DARPA's rationale, I'm sure. Part of their remit is to think about how we protect the national infrastructure, not just for military use, but for civilian use too. The internet itself was originally DARPAnet and was a DARPA uh, project in in the past. And so they have a very close attachment to making sure now that the entire nation, our economy, the way that we live uh, is runs on the internet, that keeping it secure for the, for the sake of our financial institutions, our government, et cetera, is critical. So as the rollout of 5G has come about, it's the first time that the cellular network is being defined and architected in a very, very similar way to how the wireline network has been in the past. So in the past, you know, we know about the walled garden protocols that were very proprietary and frankly, incredibly complicated. I never really understood how all of it worked. With 5G, it's the first time that someone who's been working in wireline networking can look at it and say, oh, I recognize that. It's IP, it's packets, it has support for sure for things that are specific to 5G, particularly in the close to the radios and the radio area network. But on the whole, it's architected to be a, a, a continuation of that wireline model. So now we can bring to bear all of this change that's happening in the wireline network, this move towards programmability. We can move it towards the 5G network as well. And lo and behold, the base stations, the 5G base stations, they themselves in some cases have become simpler, in some cases disaggregated white boxes, in others provided by um, equipment manufacturers. So there's a much greater diversity of types of radio and types of base station. But on the whole, programmability software is the name of the game. And so where does that software come from? That we know we're we're all very aware that there's this sort of global conversation about who is writing the software that goes into our networks and is defining the behavior of the networks. And there ends up being a lot of uh, of heartache and discussion about who wrote it, in what equipment does it go, is it open or closed, can we see it, what is in there, is there anything nefarious in there? You know, you could say this is an understandable worry given the significance of the infrastructure that we use. So what if instead we made the whole thing open source? This changes the game entirely because now you don't need to worry about where it came from. In a way, it came from everywhere, but we can all see it. It's transparent. We can look for the problems. We can look for the bugs. If someone puts something bad in there, 
we'll find it. And uh, in the past, the NSA, for example, was a big supporter of SE Linux, Security Enhanced Linux, an open source project, right? They were big supporters of open source. And in fact, they were early supporters of the SDN model on the, on the assumption that control planes would become open source. So there's always been an interest in transparency, making it harder for people to hide bad stuff. And so I think this is this is why many people are interested in exploring, can we demonstrate a national scale network, wireline plus 5G, that is based entirely on open source, yet has the not only the quality of the existing networks, but can have a speed of innovation and evolution and improvement that has not been seen before. Because now anybody can upgrade it. Anybody can up upgrade their, their network. So the basic idea is you should be able to build a more secure system this way. So just um, reading up a little bit on Project Pronto, it looks like one of the key things that you're testing is operating drones on 5G networks. So just wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Why is it important to test those drones specifically and, and how, how are things going there? When you build a new network and you want to be able to demonstrate it to other people, there's a big risk that it's going to be really boring because what do we want a network <laughs> to, to do? We want it to be invisible. You know, we only notice our internet connection when it doesn't work or when we fear that someone else broken into it. And we've always had this problem with doing uh, research in universities or demo systems, prototypes or at startups I've been involved with. How do you actually create an interesting demonstration? What's What's essentially plumbing, right? There's, there's very little to be done. And you've, you've seen these demos of terminals with, you know, command lines going past and someone saying, see, look, it's working and it's just got better. And you're thinking, really? That's yeah. kind of cool. <laughs> um, so we were, we wanted to be able to show that with the introduction of 5G, one of the, the much touted benefits is lower latency, higher bandwidth communication, and all of these things should be true because of the improved quality of the, the radio layer. And we wanted to be able to demonstrate this in a visual way that would really be appealing to anybody and understandable to anybody that's looking at it, no matter what their background, no matter what, uh, what training they had had. And so, you know, drones actually provide a very easy way to do this. It's the demos that we've been making have included five or six drones that are flying around in a lab in very tight formation. But the only way that they can communicate with each other is via 5G. So each one of them on, on its back is carrying a little 5G dongle. And then we have our own 5G base stations, our own ONF Ether software platform, which is the software system that we're, that we're deploying, and a number of switches, servers, etc., that are running the local software to control the network. And then connection off into the cloud, where there's cloud management of this plus other deployments on other, other campuses. And we wanted to show that, first of all, you could use 5G for maintaining a tight formation flight when they had no other means of communication with each other other than through a control server that they were all connected to via 5G. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing we wanted to be able to show that when things go wrong, for example, an instance of the server goes down or we need to upgrade the system, you know, it's fairly mundane things that you need to do when deploying and upgrading a system, that this 
platoon of, of drones, even though they were controlled by the system and this was their mean of communication, no matter what we what problems we threw at it, that it would just still robustly work and that you would see it because you'd see that they were still moving around. And so we kind of demonstrated examples of when it would break and then said, ah, oh, yeah, but we have high availability or we have this mechanism in there. And that allows them now to stay in tight formation. There were two that were particularly interesting that were research examples that were added by the university teams. One was in the forwarding plane. So this is in the P4 programmed pipeline of the switches. These were monitoring the traffic as it was going through and looking for what's essentially adverse behavior where a, an application had gone haywire uh, it could look like a denial of service at attack because congestion was starting to occur, queue occupancy was going up. And we wanted to see if we could nip this in the bud really quickly. So the Princeton team did a beautiful demo. They downloaded a P4 program that was that was driving one of these switches. It would very quickly detect that there was a denial of service attack and just stop it in its tracks. And it would stop within a few microseconds of starting, much faster than a conventional system could do, just because it was watching at the packet level. A second one that we did was a case where a switch had been compromised by someone from the outside who was looking to snoop and try and figure out where these drones were. Uh, so someone who was trying to compromise the control system, and they were able to exfiltrate all of the drone camera information out of the network. So from behind a firewall that essentially compromised it. And this creates packets that are flowing over illegal paths. And because they compromised one of the devices, a normal firewall couldn't catch this because you could have compromised the firewall. We wanted to show that if any one device was compromised, you'd be able to detect it such that no single packet would ever follow an illegal path. This was a research project that a student had come up with, deployed it, built it on top of the platform, and was able to demonstrate it so that within a few nanoseconds of the compromise, no packets would follow this uh, wrong path. This is the kind of thing that you can start to introduce once you have a programmable platform. You put it in the hands of smart graduate students, and they will come up with things that I would never think <laughs> of. And that's really the key, isn't it? That you create something that's programmable, yeah. and people will do wild and crazy things, and out of that will emerge from this sort of Cambrian explosion of ideas you'll get fantastic new ways of doing things. And we've seen that start to happen in networking already, I think, over the last few years. Today, if I go and visit any of the big cloud service providers, they all operate their networks slightly differently. That's because they're differentiating, they're competing, they're innovating. Some of their ideas will work, some of them won't. Some of them will end up being the right ones, some others they'll converge on a different way of doing it. And that's what it's really all about. It's enabling that sort of explosion of ideas so that you could move at the pace of software. I'm sorry, it's a bit of a cliche, but moving at the pace of software, I think is kind of what it's all about. Cliche for a reason. To wrap up, I have two questions, uh, one slightly stupid and one slightly selfish. So bear with me. The the slightly stupid one, I, I love the idea of drones as a as a demonstration for, you know, for the network working. And when you enter it, you know, and that also like heightens the drama because if you introduce a problem into that network, obviously you've got you know, a flying machine that, you, yep. that the network <laughs> right. has to contend with quickly. Um, so, so that was my question was any of these campuses, is there just a pile of crashed drones as you guys were getting, <laughs> getting, getting things together then, and we're going to open this closet and all these drones are going to fall, fall out. <laughs> 
we had hoped to be able to say no drones were hurt in the filming of these demos. Uh, it's not quite true. We lost a few. Uh, it was actually done inside a, a flight lab in the uh, Buck Schwager's uh, flight lab in the Aeroastro department at Stanford. It's a nice lab where we could uh, we could fly these things around. And yeah, a few of them, you know, we had to show the, the failure case when the demos weren't working or the new technique was not installed or enabled. And so therefore we would have them crash into each other, crash into the wall. So yeah, we lost a few. Now the slightly selfish question, and this is kind of on behalf of, I guess, most consumers, because we, you know, when you really explain how SDN works to somebody, they they start thinking of like, okay, well, are we going to get to a point where we could be just billed for what we use on the network as opposed to right now we have to pay to connect and then we have to pay to stay connected even when we're not really using anything. And we don't even get the privilege of telling the network, you know, as a consumer, we're going to be watching Netflix at eight. So really, I just want all the quality to go there. That sometimes happens anyway, but do you feel like we'll ever get to that point where those of us at the very, very end of the network will will have some amount of control in the other direction? I think the exciting opportunity that SDN and generally more programmable networks brings is the opportunity for people to try out new ideas, new ways of running networks to make them more reliable and more secure, new ways to run a business in which they are selling network connectivity to others. And so some people, I would expect, some network operators, maybe in North America, maybe in other parts of the world, will experiment with new ways to bill us, to to charge us, new ways for us to be involved in that process, new ways for us to control the traffic that uh, is streaming towards us or away from us. Some of those ideas will turn out to be good and some of them will be a disaster. And the the, the good ones, let's hope, uh, continue. The question that I often get asked uh, related to this is, what does this mean for net neutrality? Is it actually handing all of this power and control to the network operator? And are they going to abuse it in the way that uh, traffic is delivered to us? I like to think of it in a slightly different way. You know, in all the debates that are about net neutrality, the debate is always about the network operator, like an ISP, and a content provider, right? Someone who's, for example, a, a, a streaming video service. Both sides purport to be doing the best thing on behalf of the user, the consumer who is watching that video or whatever it happens to be. But where is the consumer? Where is the user in that conversation? We're not present. Everyone else is arguing on our behalf. What if we got to decide? What if we had a, had, had something to say and say, right, you know, this evening, I would like it if my video streaming uh, traffic, whether it was from Netflix or Hulu or YouTube or whatever, had preference within my network over this period of time, or I want my traffic to have pre- uh, precedence over my children's traffic. Why shouldn't I be able to say that? That actually empowering the end user. I think that whoever figures out how to do this first will attract a lot of interest, particularly in parts of the network where they are bandwidth constrained. So I can imagine in parts of the world where perhaps the network is is still you know not quite at the the stage where video streams seamlessly and is you know the, the way where a bit of control, a bit of end user control would benefit. Someone will try this out, I think, and uh, we'll find out whether it's a good idea. Yeah, I can't can't wait for that. Well, um, uh, Nick McEwen, 2021 IEEE Alexander Graham Bell Medal recipient. Congratulations again, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. Great pleasure.
For more than 35 years, CSG has simplified the complexity of business, delivering innovative customer engagement solutions. With CSG, companies can acquire, monetize, engage, and retain customers. Find out more at www.csgi.com.